We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you big science from the small island, Tasmania. The show is proudly recorded and supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to edgeradio.org.au for more information on all of the good things that they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined today by our co-host, Mibu Fisher, who's new to the team but has been on the show at least twice before. So welcome, Mibu. Really delighted to have you here because I've always enjoyed the episodes that we've done with you. Thanks, Neve. I'm excited. So before we begin today, or as part of the beginning of the episode, I should say, I'd like to start by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today to record, Lutruwita. But I'd also pay my respects to the First Nations people, wherever you are tuning in today. So I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. Mibu, I'm really excited but a little bit intimidated by the topic we're going to cover today because it's um, well beyond my comfort zone. So could you please tell us a bit more information about the topic and also our expert guest? Today we'll be talking about physical chemistry and the origins of life with our guest Dr. Rowena Ball from the Australian National University in Canberra. Rowena is a physical chemist and a mathematician which is a scientist who studies chemistry through the lens of physics. She focuses on nonlinear and complex dynamical systems, which is a mouthful for me. Um, Rowena, your chosen field is very complicated and includes a lot of complex language. Are you able to give us a brief outline of the work that you do? With my international and local collaborators, we use mathematical methods, mathematical and computational methods, to solve real-world problems involving complex chemical systems that evolve in time and and one of those complex systems that we've been interested in for some years now goes back right back to the very origins of life on earth now people might ask why we study the origin of life it all happened like a long time ago like billions of years ago and and i mean we're here now so who cares but answers to these problems have the potential to give us important biotechnology and pharmaceutical applications. The other reason we study the origin of life is because everybody, we all wonder how we got here. Now, our, our elders and ancestors know that we orig- originated, we as a human species originated right here on this continent. And an increasing body of, of of modern scientific evidence is, is supports that. But if you go back further, if you extend that point of view back further and go back and back and back some four billion years, soon after the Earth itself was formed, then we're looking at chemistry and proto-biochemistry. And that's what we're modelling using mathematical tools and computational methods. That sounds absolutely yeah. fascinating, Rowena. But, you know, for someone like me, I struggle to comprehend a thousand years ago. I love um, history and I have a real interest in it. But, like, I really genuinely, in terms of a timeline, really struggle to conceptually think about that. And we also know that um, 
to generalize, humans are kind of not great at looking at timeline scales. So I work in risk prediction of heart attack and stroke. And if I was to say to somebody, oh, you've got a 20% chance that in the next 10 years you might have a heart attack, we know that humans actually aren't very good at understanding that. So how do you, in your work, conceptualize four billion years ago? I mean, I have a difficulty conceptualizing a billionaire in money terms, <laughs> other than just seeing all the zeros written down. How do you begin yeah, that yeah. process to conceptually think about something that's just that long ago? Well, our colleagues, the, the geologists and, and, and uh, paleobiologists and geophysicists are very good at this. And um, science is a very collegial activity. And, and they are the people who've taught us, in fact, taught us as, as mathematicians and, and, and physical chemists, they're the people who've taught us about the timescales involved in life evolution and the evolution of, and the origin and evolution of the planet. So when we talk about, uh, four billion years ago, we're talking about approximations. So we don't know to, we can't say that the earth originated exactly 4.2 billion years ago, but we're talking about around about 4.2 billion years ago. And the earth, and, and, and so that the four with nine noughts. After it, so it's a lot of a lot of zeros. That is definitely a lot of zeros. And 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 for for the several hundred million years uh, after that, the Earth was was a, a very hostile place, and 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 things had to settle down quite a lot before the chemistry that gave rise to life could happen. And that is the time window we're looking at in our research. That's very fascinating. So, can I confirm that actually? We're, when we think about this, we're conceptually thinking about when the Earth, as its star or makeup, planetary makeup, was formed, and then you're interested in all of the uh, environmental things that occurred between then and when life started to happen. And what are you defining as life starting to happen? Oh, that's a very good question. And my colleagues argue endlessly about the definition of life. It really makes you think, what is life really? What is it? We know it when we see it, but could there be life elsewhere in the universe? What would it look like? So the only example of life we have is what we have on our own planet. The only examples of life we know are life that is living today, all the animals and plants and microbes and fungi that live today. And we also know life from the fossil record. And the fossil record goes back to some 3.2 billion years ago. But what about before that? So very primitive life didn't leave a fossil record, at least not, not one that we've discovered and perhaps not one that's even discoverable. And we have to, we have to look for other evidence and other signatures. So, before the first fossil record, we're looking at, at primitive pre-cellular life that was chemically active and evolving in a primitive environment, perhaps um, a subsurface, a, sub, a hydrothermal subsurface environment, um, perhaps in, um, in surface thermal pools because we have to have that input of thermal energy to drive living processes. We look at what we know life needs 
and we extrapolate back from back from there. We know that life needs an energy source. We know that life needs carbon, a carbon source. We know that life needs to be able to perpetuate itself. So it needs to be able to replicate and evolve. So, so, the, so there are various properties of life that we build into our mathematical models, then fire it up on the computer to see what pops out. And what kind of things are you looking to pop out? I mean, that's um, instantly the first question that comes to my mind. Being like, there's a in any model that we create in science, typically we're chucking in a lot of assumptions based on what we already know. So, what kind of things are you looking to? come out from that that you then try and interpret? The, the first thing is that the models have to comply with fundamental laws that we know of physics and thermodynamics. So, so we know that life conforms to the laws of physics as we know them. So any, any violation of those laws of physics and thermodynamics means that there's something, either means that there's something missing, something fundamental, some fundamental quality is missing in the models, or it means that the models are incomplete in some way. So we have ways of testing the output to, to make sure that those fundamental laws are obeyed. So that's, that, that's the first thing. Secondly, we, we, run those, we run those models and look at whether more complex self-perpetuating systems are capable of emerging from those models. And this is something we can do um, inside the computer that wasn't really possible 50 years ago. We can actually watch evolving systems develop inside the computer, look at whether that is compatible with what we know, what the geophysicists and paleobiologists tell, tell us the um, the Earth was like three to some three to four billion years ago, and then refine refine our models. So it's 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 classic scientific uh, theory experiment to test that theory, then refinement back to theory and refinement of that theory, then further experiments. Our experiments are done inside the computer. The theory is done do it doing mathematics. The experiments are done by our colleagues in Europe and the UK. That sounds so fascinating. And I love that you've relayed that as pure scientific method in action. That's absolutely fantastic. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stick with us. And in just a moment, we'll be talking more with Rowena about Indigenous science and maths. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we've been talking with our expert guest, Rowena Ball, and our co-host, Mibu Fisher. So, Mibu, we've had a fascinating discussion about how maths, physics, chemistry, the big hitters are helping us understand the origin of life. What are we going to be talking about now? So, now we're going to be asking Rowena um, around Indigenous science and how that could possibly relate to maths and physics. Or physical chemistry. Awesome, I love it. So Rowena, not only are you an incredible female scientist um, in chemistry and maths, but you're also an Indigenous woman in STEM. 
And do you find similarities between your work in the Western system and Indigenous science and knowledge? My science is very much, very much informed by the experiences of my my grandmother's people from northwestern Queensland, and on the other side, my experiences of my Irish ancestors, who also were a colonised people. And one of the things, one of the greatest pleasures of my life is going out to remote Indigenous schools and talking about maths and science with the kids there and doing maths and science activities together with their, with the kids and, and with their teachers. And I find that there is intense interest in those communities in science. I find that the students and their parents and aunties and community want science, but they're not getting enough of it. They want science and math, and they're not getting enough of it. So what I do is, first of all, I tell them about, I ask them what they think math really is, and some of them will tell me, oh, it's about numbers, or um, you know, some of the, the older ones will say, oh, it's about algebra or trigonometry or something. And, and I tell them, well, yes, all those things are very important tools in mathematics. But fundamentally, maths is about patterns and rhythms and, and symmetries and finding those patterns, identifying patterns and classifying them and looking at, the, at what that has to tell us about nature, about the world, and using that information to inform new and our use of technology. So our ancestors have been identifying patterns in landscape, in the sky, in, water, in waterways, rhythms in animal motion, cycles of the seasons for thousands of years and using that information to build better lives and inform the way of life. So your ancestors, I say, our people were the world's first mathematicians because that is what mathematics is fundamentally about. So then I have their attention. I have their attention then. And we go, we go on to do some really good, fun, hands-on mathematical activities and scientific activities too. The last time, the last time I went up, we all were, became engineers and we built bridges. We built real bridges. So that was a lot of fun too. That the time before that, we all went to Mars and played football on Mars and looked at how gravity, the lower gravity in Mars, would affect sport. So, so you know, there's there's, there's just so so many really cool maths and science activities to engage these kids. I'd say that that also engages adults for sure. And I mean, some of the questions that you were saying there really, I was writing them down because it's important, I think, to ask ourselves all the time, what really is maths? What can maths tell us about the world? Um, And acknowledging, you know, I think everybody would sit up and pay attention and it's like, well, actually, Indigenous people were using maths. They were the first scientists. Do you think that there's... Yeah, I, I think... The parallels seem, and I'm not, I, I'm, I don't pretend to be very familiar with Indigenous knowledge, but there seems to be a lot of parallels. So I wonder, are you aware of any active collaborations between Indigenous knowledge systems and Western science, particularly because um, 
I really can't recall now, but quite recently in the last couple of weeks, I was listening to um, something that was the that how fascinating does a story have to be for it to be passed down orally, generation to generation? How important and impactful and how powerful do those storytellers need to be? And I was like, well, that that doesn't discredit that knowledge just because it's passed down orally. Um, and I feel like that's where this maybe some of the disconnect between Indigenous knowledge and Western science comes in. I just wonder, is there any bridges being formed between those two knowledge systems? Well, first of all, you mentioned the oral tradition and um, and and really that 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 informed a lot of my research. But when we think about it, the oral tradition in any culture, the stories, the stories are important. That oral tradition hasn't gone away. In in, in it's always been important in human cultures, and it hasn't gone away. I think of all the con over the years, all the conferences I've been to, and like it's probably hundreds by now. How important the formal oral tradition is, so, so formally giving talk to an audience and then receiving questions and feedback from an audience of, of one's peers and, and students and so on. And the oral tradition um, outside, at conferences outside of those formal talks, is equally important. That, in fact, is where most science and maths is actually done. And that's always been the case. So, so when we talk about oral tradition, I think we we fail to acknowledge its importance in science and math, and that and that was and and perhaps we're only just starting to rediscover it. One of the collaborations I'm developing now actively involves the the rigorous oral tradition of passing down wayfinding and navigation information. And map making information that was practiced by at least several Aboriginal nations that we know of, but probably many more, and taught orally and rigorously to successive generations. Because that is very important wayfinding. Our people were always great travellers, of course, and, and and there was Google Maps is only and SatNav is only fairly recent. So wayfinding is is very important, and 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 it also had to be carried inside your head. So not you know you couldn't even unfold a a paper map. And one of the things that I've discovered is that wayfinding was a very wayfinding and its communication was a very mathematical activity, and it actually involved something that. That we now call a Fourier transform, which is which is which which was invented by a French mathematician in the 19th century, and is fundamental to signals analysis. But our ancestors actually invented a type of Fourier transform, possibly thousands of years ago. And I think this highlights that that mathematical doing math and mathematical ways of thought are actually are not like secret men's business, secret white men's business. Doing maths and mathematical thought are actually universal to all human cultures, as universal and intrinsic to our humanity as doing art, for example, and probably as ancient. I find that a really lovely way to like relate maths to our humanity, and I've never really thought of it that way, but I do think we intrinsically create patterns and love routine, which is similar to making a pattern. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. I, I also love that you 
like I kind of wonder how far have we become removed from that because that it has been locked away and it's been considered this thing that's really difficult and hard to do and therefore you know it's only it's it's elitist um I was actually reading it's part of the Steminist book club like last year one of the books about some of the first female mathematicians and the computer scientists and it was considered a really rudimentary secretarial almost job because it was just plugging in wires and stuff but they were actually the first computer scientists because but then you know it started the complexity of those tasks was recognized and then all of a sudden no women although you've been doing that you can't do it anymore um and I kind of wondered like what is this maybe the image and the issue with maths physics and chemistry that they've just been locked up and put in an ivory tower and all of us are like oh that's so hard I can't even engage with it because the way you're talking about maths sounds so creative and joyful to be honest and I'm like oh maybe Mm. I don't have an issue with math maybe math <laughs> just has an image issue <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah it, it has it, it has become it did become a sort of um you know a high priestly activity to be done by mysterious high priest male high priest white male high priest and and kind of secret and and difficult and coded and so on and so forth but but that's just an image that has come down to us that somehow is unfortunately being perpetuated. And it's not the case at all. So one of the... I, I, I like to tell the, the school kids about mathematicians in history, real historical mathematicians whom I admire, my favourite mathematicians in history. And I, and I start with a mathematician, a female mathematician called Lugna of Cordoba in Spain in the 10th century. So in those days, Spain was an Islamic country and Lugna was a was the, ma- the chief mathematician at the court of Sultan Abdul Rahman. And what she did, she recognised that children, the street kids of, of the city, didn't have access to school schooling. So what she did was she came out of the palace and danced her mathematics through the streets of Cordoba. And all the street kids of Cordoba followed her, dancing the mathematics too and singing. And then another mathematician I tell the kids about, one of my favourites, was an ancient Indian mathematician. And his work has actually come down to us through um, Gujarati script. And all those scripts were written in poetry. So he wrote his mathematics in poetry. So maths is dance, maths is song, maths is poetry. And these are things that, these are all things that are, that are universal to our humanity. The dancing, the singing, the stories. I've just, I've just told you about the mathematics of wayfinding being passed down the generations by a story. And these are all, universal to our humanity and when we think about mathematics like that and think about the famous historical figures you think about Lubna who did math with the street kids by a dance that's how math was taught it wasn't always it wasn't always taught by kids by people having to sit on benches and look at someone out the front writing on a whiteboard or a blackboard writing equations on a whiteboard that's not how it was always done, and it's still not done that way. Like I've like I've told you, at conferences, maths and science is done via the oral tradition. It's 
still is done, the most important maths and science is still done via the oral tradition. And after we've all received our oral dose of mathematics at conferences, then we go off, then we go off and the scientists do the experiments in laboratories and we do the experiments inside computers. But we couldn't do that if it wasn't if it wasn't for the oral tradition. And we wouldn't have the maths and science that we have today if it wasn't for the dance and song and poetry and storytelling of the mathematicians and scientists from all cultures that came before us. I love that. Yeah, I think that's excellent and such a good way to put it. And I also, I often ask myself, you know, how many uh, exceptional minds are we losing along the way because we teach things in such a dull way? Exactly. <laughs> I think well, most scientists stick with it until, you know, their second year of university when they have that moment, they learn something like, oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> but it takes that yeah, long, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we run the risk of losing talent. That's it. Well. To other areas, talent leaking out of science and... And, and mathematics and thank yeah. you thank you so much for um making math seem beautiful again Rowena um if there's mm. any do you have a message that you would give to perhaps your younger self or to just other scientists or people interested in science and maths um to get them more interested or to consider pursuing it like particularly to probably younger women like I just is there anything that you would say to you know those young women and girls who are you know before even grade nine they're being like no maths and physics and chemistry isn't for me um any any message that you would you would pass on yeah I think a lot of young people don't get the encouragement they need and give up too early so I would like to encourage young women in particular to stick with it because to stick with it, and it may seem difficult and unrewarding at the time, but to stick with it and keep going, keep going, because I can tell you with 100% certainty that your efforts will be rewarded and will be recognised. If you keep going and stick with it, you'll get there. So I think that's like that's the message, the major message I would like to communicate, especially to young women. I think that's an excellent point to conclude our show. Stick with it. It gets better and it, it does become rewarding. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and really hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly have. This has been one that's going to stand out for me for a while. Um, thank you to Nibiru Fisher for kicking your first episode out of the park that you've led. Thanks for all the research that you've done with that. And thank you to our expert guest, Rowena Ball. I've absolutely loved your storytelling today. It's been really emotive. And who would have thought maths could be so beautiful and emotional? Um, if you enjoyed it, please do get in touch with us. You can find us on all major uh, streaming services for our podcast content or social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Just search That's What I Call Science. For now, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.